Well, friends, Greg Kokel here. Stand to Reason is the show. I am your host and have been for a long time. Uh, and I, um, I'm glad to be able to be a part of your life and provide some thoughts, uh, reflections, insights on things that are most important so that it will help guide your own thinking in that. Um, I have uh, uh, next hour. I don't want you to miss next hour because um, I'm having... Really? This when is this one going next? Oh, this one will be Friday. Okay, previous hour. So Amy has just corrected me. Now I'm all discombobulated. Um, I get it. That's because. Never mind. Now I know. Okay, last hour. <laughs> oh, I had a discussion with Alan Schleeman about uh, uh, Andy Stanley's conference at his church. Um, what was the title of that? Uh, Unconditional. So I'm not going to revisit that information, since you already heard it. <laughs> but I do have a—I um, a, a, I, I want to make an observation. Every year, uh, for a long time, and I'm not sure if I'm going to continue doing this, but I would give a show talking about college and how to choose a Christian college for your student, if that's what you're interested in doing. But be careful, because you want to make sure that you have a Christian college— broad the community at large, uh, not just the official statements of the school, but what actually is taught there and practiced there, uh, to be a theologically safe place for your student. And so I gave—I uh, used to give, I think, four qualifiers, and then I began giving five. And <clears throat> the first thing I already said is you want a, a, you want a school that has a high view of Scripture— Okay, that's a good starting point. Something like inerrancy. Then you want to have a school that uh, believes that Jesus is the only way of salvation. So no pluralism, no inclusivism. That's really critical. Uh, and I think the next one I said had to do with, um, uh, I think I, for a while I was starting, the next one is the uh, theistic evolution. That's a concern, you know, because I think that's false, and it undermines um, the historical Adam, which is central to theology, and so if they're going that direction, that's scary. Now, it's not as bad as the other things, but then I also added the third thing, and or the fourth thing, and I'm not sure if I'm—I had five. I'm, 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 I have to reflect on it, but the, another thing they added had to do— Oh, I know, I do have five. Then one had to do with um, homosexuality and whether it was gay-affirming, and finally was the critical race theory. That was added just in the last few years, okay? Now, you know, if you've heard my shows of late when I've talked about that, I have despaired <laughs> regarding Christian schools being able to fulfill each of those requirements. Where is a school like that? In other words, a school that has a high view of Scripture— believes Jesus is the only way of salvation, is, does not support theistic evolution, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> is not gay-affirming, theologically speaking, and uh, who does not—who is not being wooed um, by some form of critical race theory or uh, equity—I get the acronyms mixed up now—equity— Thank you. Diversity, equity, and inclusion. It's not IED. It's not DIE. IED is the bomb. DIE is dead. It's the other one. Um, but uh, finding schools that are clean in each one of those areas um, is going to be really hard. 
And so what I have been doing now instead is you can still use those guidelines, but it's going to be difficult. John MacArthur School, <laughs> that's a pretty safe bet. And there are a few others, too, and I've mentioned them in the past, uh, but there are very few where you're going to be able to find a school that is not, in some sense or another, affirming something that I think is uh, inimical to a, a healthy Christian worldview. And so what I said is, don't think about sending your kid to a Christian school. If you choose a a so-called Christian school, just choose it because you're sending them to a school that a lot of Christians are going to be going to. Okay, that's a plus. But you can't count on the schools anymore uh, towing the line, being what I used to call true blues. All right, so you, you see the, the, those series of things. I ended up putting theistic evolution down at the bottom, because that turned out to be almost inconsequential compared to some of these others. And I had um, the theologically gay-affirming uh, item number three, <clears throat> and I think critical race theory and it, or its variations is number four. I am, I am now, as I'm thinking about what happened last weekend with Andy Stanley's uh, conference, Unconditional, which is, since you've already heard Alan's thing, is a de facto slick, um, I think, crafty and devious promotion of pro-gay theology. It is subterfuge. I want to put pro-gay theology as the first thing above everything else. That is, that if you're looking for a Christian school, number one, they can't be theologically gay-affirming. That's the number one. You mean that's more important than having a than having a, a high view of Scripture or believing in inerrancy, or that's more important than believing that Jesus is the only way of salvation? And I, my answer is, yeah, I think so, and here's why. Because we're talking right now about a cultural uh, phenomena. I'm not talking just about theology. I'm talking about a cultural phenomena. I'm talking about a school now that is teaching different things, <clears throat> and if it turns out that they teach that Jesus is the only way of salvation, and they teach that um, the Bible is the final authority, that's not going to be enough if they have pro-gay theology. Because that it, it, that corrupts, in my view, it, it's not, it doesn't just sully or tarnish, but it corrupts their alleged commitment to a high view of Scripture. Because there are a lot of people who believe the Bible is the inerrant, inspired Word of God, but we've read it wrong for a long, long time. And now we realize what the true, accurate interpretation is, what God is really saying in His inerrant Word, that homosexuality, at least in some contexts, is just fine with Him. And, uh, you know, um, gender ideation, uh, all that other stuff, it's all just fine with Him. So you can hold to a high view of Scripture and still believe the kinds of things that, and I'm especially here now speaking of um, homosexual behavior and lifestyle, that the Scripture itself explicitly characterizes as being inconsistent with being a Christian. <clears throat> Do not be deceived, Paul said, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. 
neither. And then he goes through a bunch of sins, and among those sins are homosexuals. But they, I mean, there are like three or four sexual sins and a whole bunch of other stuff. Fornicators, adulterers, homosexuals will inherit the kingdom of God. So what good does it do if you say you believe in the Bible who's inspired by God and that it's inerrant, and that Jesus is the only way of salvation, if what your interpretation of the inerrant Bible amounts to is promoting a behavior that Paul himself says is a disqualifier of salvation. And as I as I survey the 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 condition of the church and culture, this is the area more than anything else that is pulling members of the church completely away from the truth of the gospel. And I'm choosing my words advisedly. It, it, it's it, it, I have a hard time imagining how somebody could have a pro-gay theology. <clears throat> and someone, I mean, especially a pastor of a church or a whole denomination, have a <clears throat> theology that Paul himself says is condemnable and still be Christian. I, 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 don't, I, I don't see that. And so that's why it just occurred to me, this is more important than your alleged conviction. No, alleged, I'll just, give, I'll just give it to them. You definitely believe the Bible is the inerrant, inspired Word of God, but you, this is the way you read that inerrant word, pro-gay. You definitely believe that Jesus is the only way of salvation. You hang on to that. But then if you advanced pro-gay theology, you, you, you dis, um, what's the word? disqualify or nullify the power of Jesus in your life to forgive sins, because Paul himself says that this kind of lifestyle is a disqualification, is an evidence. It, it, this is not works salvation. This is an indicative. Those who do these things are not in the kingdom. You can talk all you want about the other things. And that's why I think it was so important for Alan to attend this meeting, this conference, and then report on it as he's done. And uh, his interview with Sean uh, has really gotten a lot of exposure, and I'm glad for that. And I hope you listen to what Alan said here with me uh, in the last show, and then go and check out Sean's interview with him, because that's an hour and a half. So they cover other material and certainly more of it, and you'll get more there. But this this is a serious um, warning. If somebody like Andy Stanley, right there in, in at, what is he, in Atlanta? That's where he's at, right? Right in, the, right in the Bible Belt, the buckle of the Bible Belt. His dad, Charles Stanley, you know, just an uncontroversial, theologically uncontroversial figure, a long history of noble service. That's his pedigree. He has a church of 35,000 people. He has a huge impact on the culture, the Christian culture. And then this is where he's going. And being coy about it. That's what really gets me. Being coy about it. 
making statements that are equivocal could could be equivocal could be read one way could be read another uh this is subterfuge so that's warning and just keep your eyes open for it this is in my view right now the number one indicator of apostasy in a church i never said that before but i've been suspicious that that's the case and now i i'm just saying it because so many churches are drinking this Kool-Aid. It's the number one indicator of apostasy. I would rather have someone not have a high view of Scripture and not think that Jesus is the only way of salvation, though still believe in Jesus themselves and trust the Bible at some significant level, who are not gay-affirming because they think this is what the Bible says. That Scripture is contrary to gay affirmation. Um, <clears throat> I was out of town for about nine days, ten days. Uh, that's why I missed a couple shows, which you would know that because we patched in other things, right? Do we do that um, that show, that interview on uh, the moral argument for God? Was that something posted, Amy? Oh, 30th anniversary and decision-making. Okay. Um I got you. That was the interview with Tim and all of that stuff. Okay, great. Did we post that show again with, the, with about the moral argument? No, we haven't done that yet. That's We have already in a long time ago. Okay. Because I just was interviewed again by the same guy yesterday. And I said, you look familiar. And he said, yeah, we did the moral argument. Oh, yeah. Now I remember we, we pilloried that show. We stole it from you and put it on our own show. And he was very happy with that. In any event... Um, so when I was gone, uh, I spoke, I think, 17 times inside of a, about a week, uh, three different universities, very small turnouts. Um, in, in fact, in almost every case, I, I, I don't think there was any non-Christians that even showed up. It was very frustrating. Uh, but at the University of Kentucky, um, there might have been. That was the largest group a week ago. Uh, a week ago last night. I was also at Transylvania University, which I didn't even know there was such a thing, but they were founded in 1780 or something in Kentucky there, uh, in in uh, not Louisville, but uh, one of those other cities. <laughs> Lexington, there it is, in Lexington. And they were founded before the state became a state. They've been around a long time. I mean, they, maybe they were founded before Transylvania became associated with, you know, Dracula or whatever. So I was thinking about making a joke, but I didn't do this because, you know, it's too risky. Although they had bats on their T-shirts and stuff in the in the uh, the bookstore there, Transylvania. I thought, what do you study at, um, uh, at Transylvania University? You know, he... Uh, no, I can't think of the word. I think of hemophilia and hemoglobin. What is that? Hemology. Hemo. What is that? Blood. You study blood. Oh, it really destroys the joke, right? Oh, uh, what is the study of blood? Hematology. Thank you, Amy. Oh, man, this is not a good sign here. Anyway, that was my joke. I didn't say it, but I thought it was a pretty good one. Or uh, dentition. How about that? You study like uh, orthodontics? Oh, you study casket making. Yeah. Yeah, I figured it'd be in politic. So I didn't say that. Anyway, um, 
I had a number of sessions at Christian schools with um, the cla- the the senior class or the underclassmen, the the high school and the middle school. So I had different different uh, chapels, and they 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 went okay. It's always a mixed thing for me to speak to high school kids. But during uh, the last session, and this was the high schoolers, um, it was filled to the gills. These were great Christian schools. One was in Indiana and southern Indiana, and the other one's across the river in Louisville. And uh, the question was asked, um, is it possible to be a gay Christian? Now, I think I gave a, uh, a sound answer, but it took me a few moments to express it, and I left out one thing. And that, I wish I had said this just before they were released, because it was the last question, and they are being released then for a week-long vacation, and everybody's anxious to get out. And so I, I made the point, basically the point, that, um, that, that living the homosexual lifestyle is inconsistent with Christianity. I think I mentioned the first Corinthians 9, 6, 9, rather. Uh, but now I think I would approach it a little differently, uh, and I would use my tactical approach. I would ask a couple questions to get some things in place before I made my conclusion, and I think that conclusion would be more palatable. So I would ask this question. When somebody says, can you be a gay Christian? Now, there is an ambiguity about that, right? Well, what do you mean by that would be appropriate at a point? Um, But I would clarify it maybe in a different fashion. And my first question would be, is adultery a sin? Yes. Is living in an ongoing adulterous relationship um, consistent with being a Christian? Now, I think the student would have said no. no. Notice the adultery is not politicized yet, right? So I'm just getting that out. Okay, great. This is a sexual sin, and living in this kind of sexual sin is inconsistent with being a Christian. Right. Then the next question, is homosexual behavior a sin? Now, I would I would hope that this student would say yes, but I, I would not be surprised if they wavered because of the culture. Now, in this school, this was a solid Christian school. I loved the faculty there. I, I loved everything I saw and the way they comported themselves. I, no, no red flags there, but that doesn't mean all the students are going to be in step with the theology. And so I'm not sure if I would have gotten that answer, but I would hope that at least the person would say, yes, homosexual behavior is a sin. And then I'd ask the same question I asked with regards to adultery, is living in an ongoing homosexual relationship consistent with being Christian? I'm just trying to connect the dots for people, because I don't know what the dif- what's the difference. If adultery is a sin— and living in an adulterous lifestyle is not consistent with being a Christian. And if homosexuality is a sin, yes, homosexual behavior is a sin, then it seems living in that kind of lifestyle would also be inconsistent with being a Christian, which is precisely what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. And incidentally, he says it about fornication as well. So the heterosexuals are not off the hook here. I'm not just cherry-picking, trying to beat up on one point of view. I'm just saying. 
No, it's not consistent. Okay, so then let's ask your question again. Can a homosexual... Uh, is there such a thing as a gay Christian, or can a homosexual be a Christian, or however you put it? Well, this is where the qualification comes in, because everybody struggles with sin, and everybody falls into sinful behavior at one time or, <laughs> or another, sooner or later, whatever. And of course, I'm chuckling because we all know it's sooner than later for all of us. <clears throat> But then, uh, that's one thing. That's not the same as living in a pattern of sinful behavior. That's something entirely different, and this is what I wanted people to see. Can a person who struggles with same-sex attraction be a Christian? Yes, of course. Absolutely. Any person who struggles with any kind of sinful temptation can still be a Christian. And by the way, that was the last thing I wanted to say, but I didn't. So I told the teachers afterwards, when they come back from break, be sure to tell the students this is my view. Just having same-sex attraction itself is not the issue. We all struggle with sin, okay? Um, It's whether one can live in a pattern of sin and, and indeed celebrate it and say that it's okay is that consistent with being a Christian? Can that kind of person be a Christian? Or is that kind of person a Christian? And my answer to that is no. So I hope that clarifies things, and, and I'm going to try to remember that little tactical approach there, starting with adultery. Is adultery a sin? Question. Answer, yes. Is living in an ongoing adulterous relationship consistent with being a Christian? Question. Answer, yes. I'm um, no, rather. Okay, well then, how, how can it be the case that, that if given that homosexuality is a sin, that living in that lifestyle can be consistent with being a Christian? So you see how that works. All right, let's take a break, and then we'll do open mic calls here on Stand to Reason. As a high school teacher, I always had a red pen close at hand. When I wasn't in front of my students teaching a lesson, you could find me assessing assignments, grading essays, and evaluating exams. The red pen played a crucial role in the educational development of my students. With it, I questioned their assumptions, exposed their errors, and challenged them to think critically. You see, a good teacher doesn't merely tell his students that they're wrong. A good teacher shows his students why they're wrong so they don't make the same mistakes twice. He corrects because he cares. Last year, I was scrolling through social media, and frankly, I was discouraged at all the bad thinking that undergirded much of what I was reading. Then it hit me. What if someone applied the red pen to this flawed thinking? And Red Pen Logic with Mr. B was born. In the last few months, Red Pen Logic has grown in popularity. Through our engaging and shareable educational graphics and videos, we are helping people, especially young people, assess bad thinking by using good thinking. And we have a lot of fun in the process. So here's your homework assignment. Like the Red Pen Logic Facebook page so you don't miss our next graphic. And subscribe at the Red Pen Logic YouTube channel so you don't miss a single video. Class dismissed. Friends, if you like this broadcast, I know you'll love Hashtag STRask. It's our shorter 20-minute podcast where I am paired with the wonderful Amy Hall, and together we answer the questions you send us on Twitter. 
Hashtag STRask is released twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays, and it's only about 20 minutes long, so it's perfect to listen to on your morning jog or while driving around running errands or cleaning your garage or just plain loafing at home. Amy and I tackle your questions on theology and ethics and culture and lots more, offering our insight on the questions you're asking or the challenges you face. You can listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your own shows. Just remember, send us your questions on Twitter using the name of the podcast, hashtag STRask. That's hashtag STRask. By the way, before I get to my uh, open my calls here, I um, and uh, Kyle, I'm going to go with Tom in Michigan uh, right out the outset. We're just moving down the list here. So if you want to cue him up, <clears throat> I'm looking here in Matthew 7 where um, Jesus talks about being—he being, bewa- being uh, he tells <laughs> uh, you can't being beware. Here's what he says, beware of the false prophets— who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Okay, now, this is open to interpretation, okay? What do you mean fruits, good fruits, bad fruits? And this is actually a passage that's been used to promote a pro-gay view, because the fruits of the classical view regarding homosexuality is very unhappy gay people. And uh, that's bad fruit on their view. But I <clears throat> I want you to see exactly what Jesus says here. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Now, um, sheep's clothing means that they look like us, okay? LDS, Mormons, are not wolves in sheep's clothing. They have a false religion. Their religion is very different from us. They have a lot of similar terminology, but it's it's a different religion. They don't look like us. They believe entirely different things. They sound like us a little bit in their vocabulary, but they don't theologically look like us. He's talking about people who are in the church that look like they're members of the church. Remember the wheat and the tares Jesus talked about in other places. Okay, so these are these are, they're wearing sheep's clothing. They look like Christians, but they're not. They're ravenous wolves. Then he talks about the fruit, okay? Good tree bears good fruit, bad tree bears bad fruit. Okay, so um, when you go down, he actually helps you understand what he means by that. Those are not just kind of vague terms that we can invest with our own meaning. In verse 21, after he says, in summary of his earlier verses, you shall know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. Okay, now he puts a, gives a moral standard for fruit. The standard there is doing what God says. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy? Remember, he said, beware of false prophets. Verse 15, here in verse 22, didn't we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform miracles? 23, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from you, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. There you have it. 
These are people who look like us, who may prophesy and do amazing things, but they they um they are not doing the will of the Father. Instead, they are practicing lawlessness. Okay? So this is exactly what we're looking at in many portions of the church today. We have people who are preachers, who are leaders in, in, in our communities, and in our churches, who are really nice people and look like us and sing like us and talk like us, but being gay-affirming, they are promoting lawlessness. And therefore, according to Jesus, they are wolves in our midst wearing sheep's clothing, but wolves. And I see that increasingly in our Christian communities. Matthew 7. All right, let's talk, uh, let's hear from, rather, Tom in Michigan. And uh, there you go, Kyle. There he is. Hi, Greg. I have an opportunity to talk to a men's group about their families and apologetics. There are others covering information on prayer, Bible study, leadership, etc. And I'll have just a couple of hours when it's my turn. What topics do you think are the most important to introduce to these men that they can then dig into and teach their families? Hmm. Thanks. A good question, Tom. And um, I kind of have a standard response to this because of the hierarchy of importance and, uh, I mean, you could talk about Jesus and salvation and that kind of thing, because in one sense, that's the most important. But how is it that we know Jesus is the most important? <laughs> it's because of what God's Word says about Jesus that we then respond to. And so I think in order of knowing, okay, in order of how we know what we're supposed to do and believe, the Scripture takes the uh, the stage front and center all right um and a lot of what i've just been talking about has to do with the authority of scripture and reading that scripture accurately okay so we have a talk or i have a talk and did a written piece too online that reflects a principle called never read a bible verse so um that material, never read a Bible verse, that's the kind of thing that I would teach a group. Even if there's there's a class where people are looking at Bible study, even in classes on Bible study, you may not be getting the instruction that you need to read the Bible accurately in that study. So, um, I mean, this is classic with Bible study groups. They get together and read a couple of verses, and then someone asks, what does this mean to you? And, of course, that automatically relativizes the verse, meaning to you, or what about to you? And everybody might have a different meaning. The goal is to figure out what does it mean? What did it mean in the mind of the author who wrote it, given the audience he was writing to? And that's why in the Never Read a Bible Verse material, when I introduce that, I say that... um, I was once asked, what is the most important thing that I could ever teach another Christian? And I say, this is it. Never read a Bible verse, because that—being able to read your 
Bible, the Scripture, God's Word, accurately is a foundation for everything else that follows. So we've been talking about churches preaching pro-gay theology. Well, the Scripture is pretty clever, is pretty clear. This is why there's a complaint about the so-called clobber verses, because these clobber verses are the six verses that people cite in God's Word against homosexuality. But these verses are not vague. They're not hard to understand. They're pretty straightforward. Okay? So, um, and if you don't know how to read Scripture in a straightforward fashion, which is the way it was given to us, most of Scripture, some was, you know, obviously poetry is different. Uh, we have wisdom literature, etc. But the epistles are letters written to churches to accomplish a theological end. The uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we're speaking of the New Testament here, and the book of Acts, is a record of history of Jesus working in the world, and then the Holy Spirit working in the church in the book of Acts after Jesus left the world. So we have history stuff. So this is pretty straightforward stuff. And if you follow this principle, never read a Bible verse, you're going to do well. Always read a chapter, I'm sorry, a, a paragraph at least, or maybe even a whole chapter. You want to get the flow of thought. Now, in that booklet or article, it's, is that on our website, Amy? Yeah, it is. Never read a Bible verse. Or in the talk that I give on that, and I think that might be available on our website as well. I just kind of go through some points there. Is it STRU? Yeah, we do. I never read a Oh, Alan did it, though, right? Yeah, so Alan has taught a course and never read a Bible verse for STRU. So that's something that if you're looking for content to be able to put together a talk for two hours with your with your team, that would be it. Or you could just go to STRU. I don't know how many, is it four or five sessions or something? You might be able to knock that out in two hours if you just watch those sessions successively. They're only 10, 12, 15 minutes each. So, um, but that's what I would suggest. Teaching someone to feed themselves from Scripture by reading Scripture accurately is the most important thing that you could do for any group, Christian group. And following the principle, never read a Bible verse, as characterized in that training material, is the best way to learn to do that. All right? There you go, Tom. Hope that helps. Um, let's see. Jeff has some thoughts uh, about uh, Sola Scriptura. It's just not a question, but we'll, we'll, we'll put him on. He's got some resources, too. Let's hear from Jeff. Hey, Greg. Regular listener. I wanted to react to your conversation with uh, Bob, I think his name was, last week, about whether Sola Scriptura is self-refuting. You gave a great answer, but I wanted to add my thoughts because I was in a similar situation to Bob about a year ago. Um, like your caller non-denominational Christian got really confused about things like the canon, whether Sola Scriptura was an invention of the Reformation, and also why non-denominational churches in America seem to be so different from the early church on some of the sacraments. On the canon, an amazing resource and also cheap on Kindle that I found was the biblical canon list from early Christianity by mm -hmm. John Mead. It gives all the early canon lists from the councils and the fathers with pretty minimal commentary. And after reading that source data, it made me a lot more confident in the Protestant version of the canon. Mm. On Sola Scriptura, what helped me get out of confusion was 
reading the works of the church fathers against the heretics and noticing that their arguments usually presuppose a sola scriptura attitude. Mm. My favorite was probably Augustine's on baptism against the Donatists, the Donatist heresy, book two, especially chapters one and three, where Augustine starts off by correcting an earlier church father, a bishop, and then he goes on to say that scripture is unquestionably the highest authority above bishops, above councils, and he even says that ecumenical councils can be wrong. Mm -hmm. On the sacraments, I would encourage others to go back and read the earliest Protestant creeds and confessions. Um, these helped me to see that you can have a more traditional view of the sacraments and still be a Protestant. For example, I was blown away by reading Martin Luther's small catechism, where Luther, who is the granddaddy of all Protestants, clearly teaches things like infant baptism, that baptism saves, that Christ's body and blood are really present in communion, and that confession to a priest is a good thing. Church history is complicated. I haven't figured it out. But my point is that Protestantism and Sol Scriptura really do have legs to stand on, even if many churches in America aren't good at highlighting that. Mm. Well, Jeff, thank you for all of that. I, it, it does. I do have a couple of thoughts on things you said, and uh, I have a book to recommend. Maybe Amy, you could look this one up for me. Uh, I have been reading a book. I think it's called Scribes and Scripture, or maybe it's Scripture and Scribes. Little kind of reddish book that does a very good job of going through a lot of these issues, how the Scripture came to be, how the canon came to be, um, how, uh, what do we do about the uh, Apocrypha, the, you know, all of that. And there's a, yeah, that's it, Scribes and Scripture, Scribes and Scripture. So I'll add my recommendation. Very easy to read and does a nice job of looking at it. And it also makes the point that the canon was a, was a, a, a it was it was um, it was a it was a process of determining whether which books were authoritative, and I think it was a Dan. Uh, um, let me just think here over at Dallas Seminary, um, who said, you know, the textual critic. I <sighs> why do I drop these names? Okay, Dan Wallace. And uh, Dan Dan Wallace is Craig Blomberg and Dan Wallace. Okay, so Dan Wallace said, "It's is is scripture in a th uh, uh, let's see how did he put it? He said, is it a uh, is it authoritatively um, confirmed scripture or is it a confirmed authoritative scripture?" And maybe I got the words a little bit wrong, but the point is, was it an authority? who determined which scripture are the right ones to be in the Bible, or was it, was, was it, uh, the, was there a confirmation of the scriptures that were already authoritative in themselves? And he argues it's the last, uh, that, that what the early church did is they recognized which books had the authority, which ones were the rule, as it were, the canon for Christians. And there were some that was so disputed, uh, some that were disputed and included, and some that were disputed and were not concluded. But for the most part, even though it wasn't until the end of the sec second century, Tertullian, I think, who has the fullest list uh, of of our, our New Testament books, that doesn't mean that it wasn't until then that it they determined this. They determined that early on because the church was using all of these books and acknowledged as authoritative, and the early church fathers make that clear. So, but, but the other question I had about Martin Luther is, if Scripture is the authority, 
and uh, and then early on we have Martin Luther uh, that would be early on in the Protestant era at least promoting infant baptism and promoting baptismal regeneration that is baptism is essential as part of salvation um, then what needs to happen is we need to be able to see that in the scripture that is the sole source of authority and I don't see that neither of those things uh, as as scripturally sound so I would not accept Luther in that regard but only because I believe in sola scriptura and not just that Luther believe that as a as a kind of Protestant church father once again back to the scripture but anyway Jeff thank you so much I really um, appreciated uh, what you had to offer here okay let's say we got next here uh, now there's a question about the movie nefarious which I know nothing about so I, I just can't do this question is do you have any thoughts on the movie nefarious which is being promoted as a film that bridges the gap between faith and horror listen any time I see a Hollywood characterization of a movie that bridges the gap between faith and anything, I pretty much am confident that they get it wrong. So I don't know anything about this movie, but what, I didn't know that there was a like a gap that needed to be bridged between faith and horror. I'm not sure I quite get that. Is this the the is this kind of movie possibly helpful to Christians or is it too much? Well, I have a suspicion. Again, I don't know what this nefarious is, but I have, but if he if he he must be familiar with it, okay. And so if if uh, Tom is saying is this is it too much? I have a suspicion it's probably too much. Do you know what that movie is? Nefarious? No, I because I, I, I don't want to. I can't answer it, so I don't need to hear the whole thing. But uh, I've just just read your summary here um, before I said I'm not going to answer it. But I'm just saying, you know, what does that mean to bridge bridge the gap between faith and horror? It is, I, bridge the gap between faith and reason. I can see that because some people think there is a gap. Okay, it's a horror movie from a Christian perspective. Whatever that means. Okay, got it. All right. Well, I haven't seen it. I know nothing about it. But if he thinks, or is it too much? It's probably too much. If he thinks it might be, I suspect it's too much. Anyway, sorry about that. Okay, let's go to Sarah. Uh, and uh, she has a question about communion. Sarah? Hi, uh, Greg. This is uh, Sarah from India. I'm from a Hindu family. And I just wanted to ask you a question. Um, about, um, uh, you know, non-believers taking uh, communion. Um, So basically, uh, I don't know how to make my question short, uh, but recently, after many years of uh, requesting my parents to visit uh, the non-denominational church that I go to, um, they came for the Easter Sunday service. And and during that service, towards the end of the service, uh, we were invited to take communion, um, and it just happened that they also took the bread and the juice, and I couldn't stop them because it was already passed on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then after that, a couple of uh, my friends who are believers said that I should have stopped them, or the pastor of the church should have stopped them, uh, because 1 Corinthians uh, uh, chapter 11 says that uh, if the non-believer takes communion, then he or she brings uh, judgment upon themselves. Mm-hmm. So um, I just wanted to know what your take is on this. Uh, and, um, you know, 
what can be done in such situations when a non-believer is taking communion with with knowing or without knowing the significance of communion. Um, thank you so much, and I hope to receive uh, your comments about this. Yeah, Sarah, you have a beautiful voice. <laughs> That's the first thing. And uh, uh, th- this, I'm, I'm looking for the passage now, 1 Corinthians, uh, did you say, is it 11? Is it 1 Corinthians or say, the one about communion? And, and um, um, look, at I'm, I am familiar with these, this concern. I am interested in the precise way that the wording goes in the scripture about this um i i'm i guess i'm it i'm not aware or not convinced i'd have to look at the text that this is um uh an unbeliever is told not to take communion because they would be eating and drinking judgment to themselves i thought that is when it is taken in an inappropriate or unworthy manner but uh, maybe I'll get that first in just a moment. Um, communion is for Christians, and what needs to happen for this to be practiced properly? Okay, First Corinthians eleven twenty-seven. I'll get to that in just a moment. Um, what needs to happen for communion to be practiced properly is for the pastor to give instructions about how it's to be done. Communion is a celebration of Christians about Christ. We remember the Lord's death until he comes. It looks back to his death, which we have participated in, which is why we are symbolically taking communion. Um, And we are looking forward to his return to come get us. So it is a fully and completely Christian enterprise. And so the pastor should say, we are glad you're here if you're a guest, but communion is not for guests. Communion is for followers of Jesus. Okay? And uh, so now, with the, and, and that, the, the liability is, uh, in that case, is the pastor's, um, um, the problem the pastor had with not explaining clearly what the... Uh, what the requirements were, what the communion was all about. Normally, pastors do explain that, though I I don't know that even in my own church there is a mention that communion is for the body of Christ, or it's for the believers. And if you are not a follower of Christ, just pass it on. Don't take it, all right? So let's look at 1 Corinthians 11, and what was that um, that verse? Um, Hmm. Whoever eats the bread, verse 27, yeah, for as, verse 26, for as often as you eat his bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat the, of the bread and drink of the cup. Um, for he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. To me, there's some ambiguity in that passage. First of all, it doesn't say if an unbeliever eats it. This is actually being directed at Christians who are eating, taking the Lord's Supper in an un, unworthy or an unwholesome or inappropriate manner. Now, my recollection is people would come to the Lord's table, and they'd eat, and they'd get drink, and they'd get drunk. Well, that's what he says, verse 21. You're eating, 
you uh, in, in your reading, each one takes his own supper, uh, and uh, and one is hungry and another is drunk. Okay, so this is what's going on here. There's 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 not a sense of uh, of uh, respect that's being displayed, or um, you know uh, the the integrity of the sacrament is being undermined by the behavior of the Christians. It's not clear to me here that if someone is in a Christian environment where there's a solemnity about the Lord's Supper and someone who's not a Christian participates in the Lord's Supper, that that person is actually um, drinking or eating judgment to himself. When it says they have not assessed, uh, they shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord, examine yourself uh, and... He needs to judge the body rightly. That, to me, is an ambiguous statement. What does that judge the body rightly mean? Okay, and uh, it looks like in the context it's referring to the body and the blood of the Lord, judging the the Lord's table rightly. Um, But I don't know what that means to judge it rightly, because the thing that they're condemning here is behavior at the table— that is disrespectful of the sacrament. So, um, my, my, given the circumstance that you are facing, Sarah, I, I, I don't expect that any judgment befell your parents who uh, took the Lord's Supper with the rest of the people, and uh, even though they weren't believers. All right, so I just, I just don't. Um, I don't think that's a problem. What I think ought to be done, though, to make things clear, is that um, pastors who are um, overseeing the Lord's Supper need to make clear to everybody what this is and who it's for. What this is and who it's for. Okay? Can you hear that? Yeah, I'm hearing all this kind of crazy stuff, and I don't know what's why it's doing that it's microphone going away or going whack. Let's take a break and see if I can fix it. Have you seen our brand new website? Stop by str.org and enjoy a fresh, clean layout with all the same great content. The new Standard Reason website was designed with you in mind. It has an easier-than-ever navigation and a crisp, simple layout so you can find all the sound analysis and careful commentary that you've come to expect from us. Browse new features that make finding your favorite resources easier than ever. As always, it's our goal to equip you, our fellow Christians, with the confidence, clear thinking, and courage you need for every encounter you have as a Christian ambassador. Our new website is just one way we're fulfilling that goal, allowing you to access the resources you need in a new and improved way. So visit str.org and keep coming back to discover new podcasts, articles, and videos each and every day. Would you like a Stand to Reason speaker to speak at your church or event? Greg, Alan, Tim, John, and I, Robbie Lashua, are available both in person and online. Just email booking at str.org to schedule us today. We can address a wide array of topics, from bioethics, gender issues and science, to theology, philosophy, and how to respond to other worldviews, all from a biblical perspective. Whether it's a Sunday sermon, Zoom conference, or YouTube live event, our skilled and engaging speakers can be there, either physically or virtually, with the goal of equipping Christians to effectively influence the culture for Christ. 
To read our bios and learn more about the topics we cover, visit str.org. Then email booking at str.org to schedule Greg, Alan, Tim, John, or me, Robbie, today. All right. I'll try not to touch anything volatile here. Uh, so we'll finish the show, hopefully, God willing. Okay, Clement has a question about our effort and God's blessing. Hi, Greg. First and foremost, I just wanted to say thank you so much for your podcast. I'm, I'm 24 years old, and um, I believe that your podcast has really expanded my knowledge of the nuances of the Bible. So mm. first and foremost, I just wanted to say thank you. Mm. And welcome. my question is, what would you say is the relationship between our effort and God's blessings and favor in our lives? And the reason I'm asking is because there are numerous times in my life I've grown up in church. I've been a Christian my whole life, just about. And um, I may have accomplished something and someone will immediately say, oh, you know, uh, praise the Lord for that or, you know, thank God for that. And I, I agree, like the Lord definitely plays a role. But at the same time, there, I'm putting in a lot of work and effort and sacrifice <laughs> and sweat into what I'm doing. So. Um, you know, is there a place for our own pride in that example, being proud of our work? Like, what's the relationship between the two? And does our work affect God's blessings in any way or vice versa? Um, so, yeah, that's my question. Thanks yeah, so much. that's a great question. Uh, and I wish I had more time to delve into it here. But, um, th- yes, I do think that our effort has a- an effect on God's blessing in our life. God blesses us sometimes with mercy, that it gives us what we don't deserve and gives us special things that we can we can thank Him for. But He also gives us capabilities that we are to use productively. In fact, when the Bema Seat judgment there in 1 Corinthians, it talks about the judgment seat of Christ, that our works are going to be judged. And the wood, hay, stubble, the nonsense is going to be burned up, but there's also going to be stuff that's silver and gold that survives. Okay, so those are that's our work that Paul is talking about. Our work, and um, and when we do our job well with what we have been entrusted, then there is favor from God, and blessings follow. Uh, look, if you if if we are to be fruitful and productive, we are to work to provide for our family, and we work hard and provide well for our family, then what we earn is something we earned. (laughs) Yet we thank God for the provision that He gave us through our efforts. If we don't work hard, then we don't get much, probably. And uh, and Proverbs is filled with uh, exhortations of diligence, okay? Paul says regarding godliness in 2 make this first Timothy. He says, um, physical exercise, that's something we do, right? He says, well, that profits little, but godliness is a means of great gain, for it holds a promise not only for this life, but also for the life to come. So as we practice and pursue godliness in our life, we benefit from it. We, we are blessed by the fruits of our effort to be godly, and it also accrues something for us in eternity, okay? So all of these concepts come together, I think, to make it clear that what we do 
makes a difference. Incidentally, Proverbs says, let another praise you and not your own lips. Okay, that means don't go around praising yourself. However, let someone else praise you. So when others praise you, you could just say thank you. You don't have to say all the glory goes to God. I mean, you could do that, but it just sounds pietistic. The fact is, it wasn't God's lips that were moving when you said the thing that encouraged somebody. It was your lips that were moving, right? So we can, in an appropriate way, take credit. Now, that doesn't mean we become haughty and puffed up. That would be a problem. But I think there is a sense in which we take pride in our work. That's different from being a proud person. That's just another way of saying, I worked hard, I did a good job, and that feels good. Look at that thing that I did. My grandpa used to build something in the cabin, then he'd sit back and light his pipe and puff away as he looked at what he just did. He was enjoying the, um, the satisfaction of having done a job well, and I think that is perfectly considerate, uh, perfectly legitimate. Now, if we take that opportunity to puff ourselves up and be haughty and arrogant about it, that's a different thing altogether. So there you go, Clement. All right, friends, Greg Kokel here for Stand to Reason. Thanks for being part of our show. Give them heaven. <laughs>